0: Welcome to Bible Theory Podcast, hosted by The Chicano Knox. Finally, a podcast about the church, for the church. 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 Bible Theory is for the streets, homie. homie. This ain't your Boy Scout, choir boy type of podcast. This is for the vato locos who have been saved by the blood of Christ, homie. Coming straight out of Geneva, donde están mis soldados reformados? Bienvenido a la Teoria de la Biblia Podcast con El Chicano Knox. You are now entering into the reformed state of mind, homie. Where we study ecclesiology and take it to the streets, homie. Coming from that five solas. Coming from that reformed underground railroad, homie. Coming from that west-west 1646, sese
1: coming live and direct from the Reform Underground Studios. And for those who don't know, you could go ahead and support the show on buy me buy me a coffee. One, you support my drinking habit of caffeine. And while you're doing that, you could go ahead and uh you know chip in with the ministries as we introduce uh the church to this lost and lonely world that that is seeking community, that is seeking truth, that is seeking Uh, you know, the Lord in all the wrong places. Uh, And that's what the podcast is all about. Bible theory is about ecclesiology, about specifically the doctrine of the church. Uh, This is season three. You know, we're going, you know, step by step, studying the church from every angle possible and bringing it not only to seminarians, not only to librarians, not only to those in ivory towers, but, you know, and nothing against that. Uh, cause I do talk to professors and theologians a lot. Um, but I want to take that kind of stuff and bring it down to the streets, uh, to East Lowe's, downtown Memphis, uh, South Houston. I want to bring it to the people who are on the fringes of the church, to those who are outcast, to those who are nearing and, you know, interested in, and, in, and who the church is, what the church is, the nature, all that stuff, the ordinances of the church, uh, All of it. And that's my calling. That's what I want to do. That's my niche and audience, not only to the seminarians, um, but to those who are outside of the seminary looking in. You know, And with that, I want to give a shout out to all the Bible theories. Uh, According to my analytics, um, I I got a huge listener base in Canada and Germany. So for those in Germany and Canada, to all my uh, gospel gangsters out there, residential theologians out there, I appreciate you. I see you. So thank you so much. Uh, please follow me on Twitter, on Instagram as well, on YouTube. Uh, all right. So I have someone special with me here today. I have uh, Dustin Bench. Uh, Professor Bench, thank you so much for joining Bible Theory to talk about your book, The Loveliest Place. Uh, real quick, can you uh, introduce yourself to uh, people out there who don't know you and you know, g- give us a little something about yourself and what you do and who you are?
2: Yeah, well, thanks so much for uh, just the very kind invitation to uh, join you. Um, as you already said, my name is Dustin Binge. Uh I am currently uh, living in Louisville, Kentucky uh, with my wife, and um, we are on the campus at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I am a professor of biblical spirituality and historical theology. Uh, so that's just um a small little picture of uh who I am and what I'm doing at the moment
1: awesome awesome so you you study historical theologie's um biblical spirituality right so um h- how do you introduce the monast- the rise of monasticism and christianity um to Christian life and how you know people kind of you know do fastings and all that stuff um that are very like has its roots to monasticism to so like Anthony and like uh, the Benedict Order and all that. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I'm not even sure if you talk about that in class, but every time. Yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting
2: question. Um, we here at Southern Seminary want to kind of underline uh, the word biblical spirituality. So this is not a spirituality that's founded in some sort of monastic movement or in some sort of asceticism or monkism, if you will. Uh, This is a spirituality that is wholly um, robust with biblical theology and with biblical foundations so that— we derive um, our understanding of fasting and evangelism and Bible study and Bible meditation and memorization and all of those other things um, that make up the Christian life by way of sanctification, we found those in Scripture. And so it's not about the Christian withdrawing from the world and Setting on a mountain and waiting for Jesus to return. Um, no, this is about the holiness of life, which is experiential and thoroughly biblical.
1: Amen. I, I just had to throw that in there because that's one of the things I hear um, when I'm out in the streets. Uh, you know, talking to people about the church, uh, having conversations. Um, you know, I hear the word uh, fasting. And I'm seeking for God, and and you know, and I'm thinking, man, you know, the monk you know, version of of Christian spiritual living, the Desert Fathers, monasticism, um, has a, you know, its his tentacles still here. Um, its misunderstandings are pretty much everywhere I see. Um, so I think that's very interesting. Mm. I think that's very good and very key that you're um, reintroducing that to your, um, to, you know, to your disciples, to, to the students there at the seminary about biblical understanding of spirituality and fasting, for example, uh, mm. stuff like that. It's very key. Um, so talking about your book, The Loveliest Place, um, give an origin story to those who don't know um, of the book, uh, the movement, you know, in the Holy Spirit, in your heart, to call you to write such a book. Uh, what motivate you? Maybe you could point out a couple, um, you know, biblical verses that maybe encouraged you more to, you know, make the book more concrete.
2: Well, actually, this book um, is a part of a series that Union School of Theology, which is based in Wales in the United Kingdom, um, has partnered with Crossway Books in order to publish. And so um, just two years ago, my wife and I moved to Wales as I assumed a position at Union School of Theology under the banner of the Union Ministry. Uh, Within Union are four basic principles or kind of guiding um, um, injunctions for our ministry. And so we partnered with Crossway uh, to produce four books that explore those pillars of ministry. Uh, The first book is Rejoice and Tremble by Dr. Michael Reeves, who is president at Union School of Theology, uh, about the fear of God. Uh, The second book is Deeper by Dane Ortlund. Deeper is really about the Christian life, sanctification, uh, etc. The third book is my book in the series uh, called The Loveliest Place, which has its origin, if you will, as you said, uh, within understanding biblical um, ecclesiology. Um, What does the Bible say? What does the scripture say about... Um, those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light and are now a part of the church. And so uh, Dr. Michael Reeves came to me and asked if I would write this third book. And so it was not that I... I uh, just decided that a book of this nature was necessary. I was instructed or invited to write this book, mm. of which I did. And then I began to explore certain um, biblical topics around the church, and that's what led me to write The Loveliest Place. And then the fourth book is coming out in September uh, called The God Who Shines Forth, uh, which is about the mission of God in the world through the gospel of Christ.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Are you writing that book, or is uh, Michael Reeves writing that book? Or uh,
2: Yes, the, the main author of that book is Daniel Hames, who is executive director at Union, uh, okay. in partnership with Michael Reeves. And so you'll see both of their names on the cover of that book, uh, but that will come out this fall.
1: Awesome, awesome. I'm, I have questions about it already. So the mission Day of, of God, the church, uh, I wonder if it's going to be have a hint of amillennialism, or post-mill, like how does that church history focus? I'm very interested in read that book now. Well, uh, I haven't
2: seen the manuscript, but I will say right. it's about the gospel going forth through evangelism and missions. It's about okay. church planting. Um, okay. It's about okay. God's mission in the world, not eschatological mission.
1: Okay. Okay. Awesome. Well, I'm still excited to read that book. Uh, well, thank you for that insight there. Um, for, that, for those who don't know, go out there and um, be expecting that. Real quick, um, what is the whole deal? Here's the first question that many people have on their minds uh, when thinking about the church. I'm talking about laypersons, people out there in the streets who who are not necessarily church members. uh, But for those who are, you know, who think well of Jesus, but yet they don't necessarily connect the dots of Jesus and His body, right? Um, What is the whole deal of meeting, gathering? Uh, and going to church, like, you know, um, what's the big picture there, if you could get that communication across to those who are listening?
2: Well, this is a phrase that we often use, isn't it, that I'm going to church, or I'm gathering um, for church. Um, It's not that we gather for church as believers. We are the church. Um, We don't go to church. No, we are the church. And so we must say believers gather for worship, that is the worship of the triune God. And then if we look into the practice of the early church in the book of Acts, we find that they gathered um, for various reasons, for mutual edification, for preaching and teaching of the word of God for mutual accountability in regard to sin and the confession of sin and the repentance of sin. They gathered for prayer. They gathered around the Lord's table, that is communion or the sacraments, if you will. And they gathered for the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so there was uh, a direct influence or a direct uh, connection with the worship of the triune God. Now, uh, there's some verses in the book of Hebrews that are very important in talking about uh, gathering as the church. Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25, it says, uh, "'Let us consider how to stir up one another uh, for love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near.'" So we have there, from the author of Hebrews, a direct commandment, if you will, to gather as the body of Christ on the Lord's day for worship. And so the writer of Hebrews is clear, we gather to stir one another to love and good works, to encourage one another, knowing our Lord's return is near. And so believers are drawn together because we are the body and the bride of Christ. And so anyone who does not enjoy church here, gathering as the church and the body of Christ, certainly will not enjoy heaven.
1: Right, because it's one giant gathering, one, one giant. It's the body of Christ gathered, uh, assembled together finally um, in Revelation. It gives us that image from every tribe, every town, every tongue. Um. Next question. What you know? Um. People think about the church. You know what I mean. In, in those terms, disconnected from the body. Uh, and we are encouraged to stir one to stir one another up for good works. Um. And we are the church. And people drive by their people drive by churches all the time. And 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 the West has, has many Bible belts. Um. You know what I mean. There's like, Southern Southern California. I think there's a Bible belt. Uh, Nashville the Bible about uh, it's called Florida, uh, then you got the Southern the Southern Baptists, Baptist, and, um, you know, in the South, uh, you got so many Bible belts, you know what I mean? Um, when people look at the church and they drive by that building or drive by that association or the headquarters of so-and-so, why should people even like care about the local church? You know what I mean? Well, what's the difference between local church, non-local church, and then why should people even care about the local church?
2: Well, God, God defines the church first by who she is rather than what she does. Mm. And so in chapter one of The Loveliest Place, I begin by examining a verse in the Old Testament, uh, an, a verse that normally people would not associate with the church. Uh, Song of Solomon, chapter one, verse 15. Um, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Uh, John Gill, who was an 18th century English Baptist pastor, interprets the Song of Solomon as many others do within church history, as an intense allegorical portrayal of the love, union, and communion that exists between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And so Christ looks at his bride, the church, and says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Now, this has nothing to do with what she does or has done, but the church radiates beauty in just being who she is in Christ. Now, what's so amazing is when we consider that the church is composed of sinners, once enemies of God. And in her own eyes, the church is full of spots and blemishes. We could have many podcasts kind of pointing out those spots and blemishes that make her sometimes, just to be honest, disgusting to behold. But Paul comes along here in Ephesians 5.27 and reminds us that at the end of the age, the church will be presented to Christ in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And so the church isn't beautiful just because of what she does. She's beautiful because of who she is. And that has nothing to do with us. And it has everything to do with what Christ has done on the cross in giving his life, in pouring out his blood on her behalf to purchase the church, to purchase his bride. And so why should we love the church? We should love the church because Christ first loved the church and gave himself up for her. He gave his own life on the cross. He gave his own life in suffering and spilled his blood for her, righteousness and union and forgiveness and justification and regeneration, shedding his grace upon her. And so when Jesus says, behold, you are beautiful, my love, behold, you are beautiful, he's seeing a reflection of his own sacrifice and the perfection of it and the glory of it and so we should love the church because we too see Christ's perfection and glory and beauty in his sacrifice of himself on her behalf
1: that actually answers my next question but like you know people like to look at the temporal they they don't like to look well because you know the you know the spiritual things of god you know cannot really translate to understanding in the in the world sense, because the world cannot understand the spiritual um, you know they, they read the Bible and, and they, they don 't understand the Bible because they don't have the Holy Spirit they're not a, alive in Christ they're not in Christ and they don 't understand that alien righteousness as Jonathan Edwards would say that alien righteousness that makes us uh, that makes us beautiful like you said um, because they like to look at the you know the um, that unrighteousness that's in the church only. So when people drive by the church, they're so like, oh, that's where, you know, that's what that ha- That's where fill in the blank, you know, happens or that's where fill in the blank. So-and-so goes there. Um, so yeah, it's very, very unique um, of how your book really likes to take the takes a really heavy angle on the beauty of the church, the glory of the church. It really does elevate the church to a higher point of view I really love how you really did that um, to take our, our view, our gaze off um, the horizontal and just look a little up, you know, the vertical Uh, because the church doesn't point to us. It doesn't point to us. You know what I mean? It doesn't like focus on us on egos. And even though there's a lot of egos and and, and personalities in the church, um, in the local church, and that sometimes distracts, sometimes uh, uh, water down, sometimes uh, even, take our gaze off christ which is the which is worse right than all those but i like how your book uh your book really causes us to meditate on on where our beauty comes from um and that's from christ that alien righteousness um you know if if you want to um put it in in a summary for those who are listening and they want to read the book they want to get a gist for the book real quick um how would you describe your book you know in a nutshell for them
2: well, we we have great books on the church. Uh, we have great books on the church's form, uh, methodology, structure. You can read any number of books on the church's organization, membership programs, and all the rest of it. Uh, but uh, what I'm wanting people to have affection for is who she is and why she exists. Mm. And so, there has to be a proper definition of the church, right? And so I start out by trying to properly define the church. The church is the assembly of the redeemed. That is those who have been called by God the Father to salvation through Christ the Son. 1 Peter two nine, uh, the Apostle Peter describes her as being composed of those who are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so the church is an assembly, a body of the redeemed, the bride of Christ. Now, if we were to go uh, a, a bit deeper, we could say uh, really several things here. While the church has a clear command to make disciples of all nations— Uh, a clear purpose, the gathering of the corporate worship to hear a preaching and teaching of Scripture and the celebration of the ordinances. We also have a clear mission to evangelize the lost, to mature believers, to defend the weak, to feed the poor, etc. Those in themselves do not define who the church is. That is, to capture her beauty, to capture her loveliness, the church must be defined not by what we do, but by who we are. And there's no more robust foundation upon which to build a definition of the church than the eternal work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The church is chosen by God the Father, saved through Christ the Son, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And all who are saved out of the darkness of sin are brought into union with Christ and are part of her body. And so what I'm trying to seek to do within the loveliest place is to define the church by who she is rather than what she does.
1: Activity versus identity, Mm. right? Yeah, so we're not defined by, you know, not not, not necessarily, because, you know, the church gathers, when people do gather to worship, you know, on a Wednesday night or on the Sunday morning, we do gather on, 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 you know, shared convictions, you know, it's true that we gather for mutual beliefs, like the confessions or the creeds, um you know, the pastor gives a, a call to worship, you know, we, we, are, we are assembled under you know, mutual convictions and shared beliefs, but and we do care for the neighbors. You know, we, we send money to Ukraine or whatever, fill in the blank as the church. You point a very important thing here where even though that we do those evangelical good works, to use a high, high term there, the evangelical good works don't define us as the church, even though we do all those good things. And we, we, we should. I encourage. When we gather we should encourage one another to do those good things right because that's that's one of the the things that we tend to do at church is to stir one another up to to lift one another up right uh, to do those good things to be zealous for good works right uh, but those activities don't necessarily define who we are in Christ because we are in Christ we are in we are the church so we are in his body Christ is the head of the body. So I think that's a really good distinction there of the activities um, versus the identity of who we are in Christ. Mm. Um, So for the application, the nitty gritty, uh, people really want to get into it, um, into how can they apply to the, how can they, they apply these things to their, to their everyday lives. So like if somebody is struggling with loving other people in their local churches, for example, their other brothers and sisters are struggling with it. Rather, maybe they're introverts, extroverts, maybe they're engineers or computer programmers. They have a certain type of personality. I don't know. I don't know. You know what I mean? You ever met an engineer or, or, or a data entry guy or a programmer? They have a certain type of, 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 of uh, type A, type B type stuff. Uh, you know what I mean? So whatever they're fill in the blank. Um, what are some of the tips um, that you think your book provides um, to those type of people who are struggling with loving their brothers and sisters at church?
2: Well, it, when we survey uh, the kind of the current state of the church, it's it's all too easy to become very discouraged and disheartened. It seems that every generation sees the challenges that come to the church, and at the moment we obviously have our, our share of fair share of challenges. Uh, not only does the church face challenges from the outside with pressures to conform to the culture and society around us, but the churches face many inward inward challenges from scandals and abuse, doctrinal error, infighting, disagreement, and all the rest. And so when I might get discouraged, I have to go to the scripture uh, to remind myself that the church was never the plan B in the mind and heart of God. Even when Adam and Eve fell in the garden in Genesis 3 and introduced sin into the perfection of God's creation, the church was still the trajectory of God's redemptive plan. And as such, the church is the object of God's divine love to us through Christ. And so personally speaking, when I become discouraged... Uh, have difficulty in loving people and all the rest of it, I have to mentally and emotionally shift my perspective from myself and look heavenward and remind myself of God's promise to dwell among His people, Christ's promise that He would build His church, and the Spirit's promise that He would be her helper and sanctify her and make her ready for Christ. I mean, Jesus even said, hell can't stop God's plan for the church. Amen. so our discouragement with the church as a whole often has to do with losing a proper definition of the church. And the church becomes all about me and what it can provide me and what it can do for me and what she can um, say to me and how she can coddle me, et cetera, et cetera. But... We have to have a proper definition of the church, and in so doing, we end up loving the church because Christ first loved
1: the church. Amen. Knowing who we are is very important. Um, identity who we are in Christ, um, what is our relationship with this? Um, that's very important because many people look in church history, for example, um it can be very discouraging, you know what I mean? Uh, And people like to, um, secular people like to throw a lot of um, rocks at the church by saying, the church is not perfect, one, that's true, church is not perfect, our alien righteousness, right, comes from Christ. So people like to look at the church and be like, well, you know, look at your church history, you know, you guys are a mess. You guys are fighting all the time, Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, At one point, for those who don't know, the world was almost taken over by Aryans. You know what I mean? So like, I, I, you know what I mean? Like every, everybody around the whole Mediterranean was all Unitarian. You know what I mean? Rejecting the Nicene Creed. And for a minute there, it looked like the whole world was going to be encompassed by, you know, Unitarianism. Um, and then it didn't. Um, so that I'm sure for those who are living, you know, for those who lived at that time, it could have been very discouraging to love those people within <laughs> the body of Christ. Um, so for, for those who are, like, walking into church and they're like, you know what, for those who may not even be Reformed, let's just say people are listening right now are saying, you know, I'm not Reformed. I'm, like, I'm not, you know, Reformed, I guess. So, so I, don't, I don't even know how to think like a non-Reformed guy anymore. <laughs> but people walking in and they're like, you know what, the Reformed churches don't even emphasize the Holy Spirit as much. That's one of the things I think maybe they might say against the Reformed people. And they say, well, my church emphasizes the Holy Spirit more. And you guys, the Reformed people, tend to not emphasize the Holy Spirit as much in your church services, in your preaching, or in your expressions. Like, say, amen. I guess in Baptist churches, I guess you do hear a lot of, amen, hallelujah. <laughs> and Presbyterian churches, we, we, you know, I guess we don't do that as much. Uh, At least the ones I've been to. Um, So there's an emphasis on certain things and there's an emphasis on non-certain things. Essentials, non-essentials, I guess. I don't think you address that as much as in the book, but like people would walk away and thinking, maybe thinking about some of those things. Um, What is your encouraging word to those people who have those kind of objections um, and who might say, you know, the reform people, the reform camps? Don't put an emphasis on the Holy Spirit as much. Um, wh- what would you say against that?
2: Well, th- there's a whole chapter in the book on the Holy Spirit. And so, because I think of the abuses of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I think many churches seem to underemphasize his role and work within the life of the church and the walk and sanctification of the Christian. Um, let's go back just a little bit to, to comfort his disciples. Jesus tells them that when he leaves and ascends back to his father in John 14, 16, he says, I will send you a helper. Now the Greek word used here in reference to the Holy spirit is the word parakletos, which means one called to another's side specifically to help and to aid that is, it can denote an intercessor, an assistant, or someone who pleads another's case before a judge. And that really word itself reveals to us the all-encompassing role of the Spirit within the body of Christ. He is our helper, our intercessor, our assistant, our advocate, comforter, counselor, sustainer, on and on and on. And so, what love Jesus has for His church in sending us a helper. He doesn't leave her uh, to fend for herself uh, with her own devices, inventions, creative, uh, creativity, or wit. Uh, surprisingly, He says in John sixteen seven, it's to your advantage that I go away, mm-hmm. because if I don't go away, I can't send the helper. And so any question or any discussion on the church would be severely lacking without a close look at the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Without him, the church would never have been founded. Godly leaders would never be called. Believers would never be added. Gifts would not be distributed. Service would not be rendered. And growth would never be realized. I mean, let, let's think about it for a moment. The Holy Spirit is mentioned some 56 times in the book of Acts as filling, helping, guiding, calling, aiding, growing, sanctifying, maturing, organizing, assisting, regenerating, teaching, testifying, interceding. And I could just go on and on and on. Right, Without yeah. the ministry of the Holy Spirit, there is no church. But with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the church shines forth Beautifully as he makes his glorious dwelling among her. And so, if there's a church that doesn't emphasize the Holy Spirit, and I'm not talking about ecstatic experiences, I'm not talking about emotionalism, I'm not talking about amens and shouting and all the rest of it that we tend to equate with the presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about the depth of doctrine in understanding the third person of the Trinity's presence and work among the church. If there's a church like that, then it's actually not a church, because you cannot have the church without the ministry, power, and presence of the Holy Spirit.
1: Amen. A lot of people will, you know, they shy away from the doctrine. You know what I mean? They they shy away from... um, studying the word, uh, John seventeen seventeen, you know, your word is true, sanctify them in, in your truth, um, Jesus said in his prayer. Um, so, you know, in, in chapter 13, real quick, um, you, you do talk about uh, blessed persecution. Um, real quick, um, can you encourage those who are in the midst of persecution? Um, what are some misconceptions about persecution? Um, and what what should we expect and persecution for those who are in it right now?
2: Well, according to Scripture, every faithful believer must expect persecution. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, was deeply persuaded that conflict is inevitable between the church, that is, those who are composed of those living righteously, and or between those in the world who live in ungodliness. Uh, Lest we think the church is immune or exempt from persecutions and sufferings in our modern age, Paul comes along and says in Second Timothy 3 verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. And so the reason for such hatred from the world against the church is that those who make up the body of Christ and the bride of Christ desire to live a godly life. Now, this doesn't mean that every believer will be tortured and imprisoned or asked to recant or even burned at a stake, but you as a believer will experience at one point or another opposition from the world. Now, what does this mean for the church? It means that the church is composed of those whom the world despises. There may be a a facade of friendliness or desire for cooperation, but in the recesses of the heart of the ungodly, there is a vehement hatred for the things of God and the good news of the gospel. And so we have to understand that and we have to understand who we are and we have to understand what they are. And we have to expect persecution in the days ahead.
1: Well, God, God, help us. Right. Um, When Mm. that time comes and, you know, uh, my pastor preached on this recently in um, First Thessalonians, the church who have been persecuted. Um, you know, he, he encouraged us to look to those who have been persecuted, so we could suffer like them. We could suffer well, um, you know, enduring in the faith. Um, but mm. you know, for those in the in the world working sixty hours a week at a desk job, working an engineering job at a you know at a tech company. Uh, you know, doing those type of uh, white-collar jobs, perhaps. Uh, maybe all my accountants out there probably know this, and all they see is spreadsheets all day, and they're believers. They go to church every Sunday. They they know the Apostles' Creed. Um, you know what I mean? The, to those people out there, they may walk away with reading chapter 13 and saying, you know what? I firmly believe in Jesus. I firmly love this book, all these things, yes and amen, but I don't feel like I'm persecuted in my life. I never can ever recall a time in my life that I've ever been persecuted. Uh, you know, I've never re- had experienced any type of resistance, not even a scratch from a cat in that sense. Um, and I don't, maybe I'm not a Christian then. So maybe they're, they're struggling with that. Um, what are some of the things, I know you alluded to this, to this earlier in a second ago. What, what are some of the reinforcing things you could also add um, right now to, to those people who are, you know, struggling with those type of concerns and questions?
2: Well, ju- just to be honest, I'm not sure that I've encountered someone uh, that doubts their salvation because they aren't being persecuted. In, in fact, I normally find the exact opposite. I, I find many Christians have a persecution complex, and believe every disagreement or rebuttal is persecution and they should be running for the hills. Uh, Let me just say the western world knows very little of the severe physical persecution because of our faith. Uh, We have in most aspects been richly blessed with freedom to worship and practice our faith in a very open and a very vocal way. Uh, We're seeing some of that disappear in certain circles But the believer should not go looking for persecution in order to give them some sort of quasi assurance for salvation. If you instigate an argument over a hill that you want to die on and receive pushback, that is not persecution. And so we have to give a proper biblical definition of what persecution is. Persecution comes to us as we live the normal, everyday Christian life. We share the gospel with others, we live godly and holy lives. Paul said you will inevitably face persecution eventually. Now, that doesn't happen every day. It may not happen in the past five years to you, but there will be some sort of resistance. There will be resistance from the world in which you live. So if you're a Christian and you're not facing any sort of resistance whatsoever, maybe you need to up your evangelism. Maybe you need to up your sharing of the gospel of Christ. Maybe you need to to have... um, more of a conscious awareness of your holiness. Now, again, Christians are not to go out and look for persecution. This is everyday Christian living. Are you living the Christian life faithfully and in accordance with Scripture?
1: Amen, because it's okay to be plodding along in the kingdom of God, right? Absolutely. Not everybody everybody needs to be a, a superstar in the kingdom of God to use a you know, to use that verbiage. You know, not everybody needs to be a John the Baptist where, you know, you're preaching to the legal magistrates. Um by the way, John the Baptist did die uh on the basis of, of preaching biblical marriage, which is kinda interesting. But not you don't have to do that. You know what I mean? Not everybody is called to be John the Baptist and then to be persecuted and then then to be a martyr. Right? Um so it's okay if you're changing a diaper you know what I mean? It's okay if you're washing those dishes or raking the yard if you're an 11 year old. You know what I mean? Um, uh, it's, you know, equating and building spreadsheets all day, and then you, you feel like you're not feeling a persecution, um, and you're like, "Well, I'm not a Christian." You know, you know, eventually you will. You know, the Bible does guarantee that. Um, but it's you know, you know, you know, it's not guaranteed, and it's not biblical that you, you seek it um, and. You shouldn't be seeking martyrdom, you know what I mean? And you know, and maybe you do need to up your game on the evangelism. And you're right, uh, professor, that in the West we don't really know what that really is, um, in the, in a real sense. Um, yeah, you know, people in, in in Iran, for example, one of the fastest growing churches uh, in the world, China, um, Iran, highly pressured against the church and, and they seem to they seem to be growing and they 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 hit and they feel real persecution you know they they, they a lot of people are martyred there without even being reported on the news uh kidnappings of christian pastors and christian pastors wives you know what i mean some drastic stuff that we don't even hear about in the news you have to like dig it up on the news here so uh blessed are all those who are persecuted right for, for righteousness sake um you know, for for you know, going back a couple chapters, um, chapter eight, you write about uh shepherding the flock. Um, you point to the fact that elders, you know what I mean, like you know, the concept of elders should keep watch and feed the sheep, um, and preaching the word. Uh many churches believe they are doing this, um, you know what I mean, but however, they're just wolves in sheep clothing. And the Bible warns us about this that many wolves will creep into the church. Um, and many have become elders um, and pastors and, unfortunately, church leaders. Um, Should, you know, churches and credential councils um, should be doing a better job and maybe looking for shepherds and elders um, when they're processing a candidate for the ministry? Like, isn't this a potential blind spot, you think, if you really want to take this to the application of local presbyteries Synods and assemblies, like the SBC and the PCA, uh, you know, many church, many church denominations are dealing with um, current issues of the world that has creep, that distorting or disrupting the peace of the church and and the doctrine, the purity of the doctrine of the church. In many of these, um, you know, conservative denominations, um, you know, when you look at it you may be looking like, shouldn't the credential council or these presbyteries be looking at not necessarily better candidates, but like maybe asking better questions to these candidates and not let them in? Because obviously there's some of these preachers that are supposedly faithful, supposedly conservative on the doctrine, right? They pass the test of the Westminster, Westminster but at the same time, they're preaching weird things that are like, Secular, very popular in the secular world, but at the same time, it's like, who hired you? You know what I mean? Who, who gave you the okay to come along and preach these things? Uh, maybe these councils and some of these credential committees should be doing a better job and asking better questions. Maybe they should, catch, they should be able to catch these things, but a lot of them don't. That's my question to you is what's going on in this processing of recruiting in ordaining these type of pastors, um, connecting that to your um, chapter 8.
2: Well, l- let me just say quickly, that this is why having a plurality of elders within a church is so helpful. Uh, it maintains accountability for our lives and doctrine. Uh, when we are accountable before other biblically qualified men for our life and doctrine, we are less likely to fall into error. Rather than looking for men who agree with every nuance of the culture, we need to find biblically qualified men. Paul outlines those qualifications, uh, for instance, in his letters to Timothy and Titus, and we need as a church to follow those qualifications in seeking out men to serve in our churches. And there's a proving ground, and this proving ground for each qualification really encompasses three separate spheres of influence. Uh, First, his home and family, then his spiritual maturity, and then his community. And it's within these three contexts that a man's character is continually and consistently scrutinized and proven and tested. And when men are placed into a pastoral role without having met these qualifications, immeasurable harm befalls the church, and error begins to creep in.
1: So what do you do with those pastors that kind of meet the criteria on the surface? They they graduated from a seminary, they they memorized the scripture, they they have one wife, they have two kids, they own a home, they're ex-military maybe, they're men of renown, they're known, good reputation.
2: Well, well, mo- most of what you've said there are not biblical qualifications. Um, so an elder team, uh, a group of men, a group of elders, have to begin scrutinizing this person's life in regard to their personal holiness and doctrine. And they, they need to put them through the framework of... These biblical qualifications. Now, it's not always possible to discern every little nuance. It's not always possible to discern every small little thing. Uh, this man may have hidden sins in his life that are yet to be revealed, etc. But we have to do our due diligence in finding if this man is is a qualified man to be in the church. And again, that's why you have a group of elders rather than one person to oversee the whole authority of the church. You have a group of men who are collective pastors of the flock.
1: Yeah, amen. Um, Yeah, because a lot of people, a lot of pastors are coming out, you know, saying things, and then they're like, it feels like you're changing jerseys in the middle of the game, you know, and that's what's causing a lot of stuff. A lot of disruptions, um, you know, in in many conservative denominations, um, you know, so that's why I asked that question because it's like, Mm. maybe they should ask better questions like, what do you think on this issue? You know, uh, let's find out (laughs) now that you're saying this, um, maybe they should have asked them a long time ago about that issue (laughs) Uh, because, you know, like you mentioned about culture, we should be um, against. The culture in a sense, contra in pro mundo in a sense. In a sense. We're, we're, we're in the world, we're, we're, we're for the world, um, the effectual calling of the gospel is for all the people, but then again, we should be, have that spirit of, of we're not with the world in, in the league in league with the world, right? We're contramundo in that sense um, with the modern spirit of every age, in any age, right? Um, so when when pastors are looking giving off that vibe and verbally confirming vibe as well of you're linking up with the world and and in and, and the spirit of the world and and if you're a church leader and you're supposed to be conservative i think there's got to be real main, main big issues in that sense um you know so real quick um professor what is um the biggest problem for the church today you think um, what are some pointers that you would, um, you know, recommend young— maybe there's a pastor out there listening to us, um, and he's going to read your book, and he's a new church plant. What are some of the bombs that you would recommend him to avoid as a young church plant?
2: Well, that, that that's an enormous question, and it would take a considerable long time uh, to unpack. Uh, my encouragement would simply be, Um, to know who the church is, um, to uh, invest your life into a a robust study of the scriptures, uh, desiring to define the church not by what she does, but by who she is in Christ. And the more heavenward understanding we can have scripturally centered understanding we can have historically theologically robust definition that we can have of the church uh, the better off our ministries are going to be keep a watch on your doctrine keep a watch on your life by way of holiness and sanctification bury yourself in the scriptures be be married to the text And allow the scriptures to change and to transform your life from one degree of glory to the next. And so you know, is there a major issue in the church right now where there's a thousand issues in the church right now that needs to be looked at through a doctrinal framework, but the greatest thing you can give your church, and I'll quote Robert Murray McShane, a very young Scottish theologian and pastor. uh, He said, my greatest, my, my church's greatest need is my personal holiness. And so I would say to you, your listeners, that your churches, if you're a pastor, your church's greatest need is your personal holiness. And I would say that to all believers who are part of the body of Christ. Your church's greatest need is your personal holiness. And so let that be, be my
1: uh, final encouragement to you. Amen. Amen. And what an encouraging, um, awesome, uplifting, insightful this whole conversation has been. Um, Real quick, where can people find your book, and if people wanted to follow you, um, where can they follow you and stay in touch with you and your ministry?
2: Yeah, so the the book is available on Crossway's website. Uh, It's available on Amazon, which most people would go to. Uh, It's available through Westminster Books. Most anywhere, you're going to be able to buy books um, this book is available. Um, there's also a small little companion book to go along with it, Why Should We Love the Local Church? It's a distilled down version, a much smaller version of the larger, the loveliest place. And so I would encourage you uh, to take a look at that as well. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, that's usually the place that people normally find me, just my first and last name, uh, D-U-S-T-I-N-B-E-N-G-E, uh, Dustin binge You'll find me there. Um, you can find me on Instagram and other platforms. Um, so just type in the name and I'll come up there somewhere.
1: <laughs> Amen. Y'all know where to find me on Twitter as well. Instagram, um, buy me a coffee, YouTube. So, um, I'll go ahead and post this up. I know people will be blessed by it. Uh, a lot of questions around the church. Uh, what a, what an amazing book. Uh, it's, it's like one of those books I'm going to read like at least once a year, put it on my yearly um, you know, a hundred years from now they'll be indebted to your work. Um so well, let that I be really an encouragement. appreciate that. Thank you very let much. That, let let that be an encouragement to you, Professor. So I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for your time again. So uh until next time, I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to Bible Theory. Don't forget to share this with your homies, support Bible theory on Patreon. Follow me on Twitter at The Chicano Knox. Like and subscribe to Bible Theory on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio and more. And more. And Gracias por escuchar Bible Theory. Bible Theory. No olvides a compartir esto con tus homies. Apoya Bible Theory and Patreon. Sígame en Twitter and the Chicano Knox. Dame un like y suscríbete a Bible Theory and Spotify. iTunes, Google Podcast iHeartRadio Heart Radio, E-Mas.